0: Illinois is frequently regarded as a stronghold for promoting and enhancing healthcare access. The state's steadfast dedication is reflected in its forward-thinking initiatives and legislative measures, establishing a supportive landscape for a wide range of communities. This unwavering commitment encompasses inclusive healthcare for immigrants, comprehensive reproductive healthcare services for women, LGBTQ plus affirming care and equitable health services for our diverse communities. However, amidst these commendable efforts, the state grapples with ongoing economic uncertainties and the gradual reduction of emergency funding related to the COVID-19 pandemic, presenting formidable challenges as Illinois navigates the path forward in the realm of healthcare. On January 25th, HC3 gathered for the Future of Health in Illinois Forum, marking the beginning of 2024 with a fresh surge of hope, a wealth of information, and a resolute commitment to addressing the vital needs of our state. In this episode of the HC3 Podcast, we're delighted to share valuable insights from this live event hosted at Nixon Peabody's Law Offices in Chicago, featuring individuals actively making a meaningful impact in the state of Illinois. This installment highlights remarks from David Smith, co-founder of HC3 and founder and CEO of Third Horizon Strategies, followed by an address from Illinois State Deputy Governor Grace Ho. Following the Deputy Governor's address is a comprehensive panel discussion moderated by April Schweitzer, a partner at Nixon Peabody. The panel includes insights from Kristen Schultz, Chief Strategy and Operations Officer at Planned Parenthood of Illinois, Michael Ziri, Director of Policy with Equality Illinois, and Steph Wilding, CEO of Community Health. This is the HC3 Podcast. Hosted by the Healthcare Council of Chicago, an initiative managed by Third Horizon Strategies. This episode of the HC3 podcast was made possible by HC3's parent company, Third Horizon Strategies. Third Horizon Strategies is a consulting firm focused on shaping a future system that actualizes a sustainable culture of health nationwide. The firm offers a 360-degree view of complex challenges across three horizons, past, present, and future, to help industry leaders and policymakers interpret signals and trends, design integrated systems, and enact changes so that all communities, families, and individuals can thrive. Learn more about who we are and what we do at www.thirdhorizonstrategies.com.
1: This year, I'm kind of thinking about it a little differently. We've been through a few really harrowing years, right? Like COVID, recessionary activity, the industry, our industry has been just weird. It's been very restrained, very constrained, very cautious. It's been a strange time and I found myself... Uh, every year as I sit down and I write out my five things becoming a little bit more jaded and a little more pessimistic about the future. It's hard to think about the future of health in Illinois and get really excited when we know there's so many gaps, so many challenges, too little funding and, and all the things that go with that. So this year I've started something a little different and I started to write down three the, the reasons that I'm optimistic or I have some optimism about the future. And I can report to you that is an authentic optimism. I'm optimistic about where we are because as as bleak as things seem and feel for the work that we all collectively care about and spend our lives pursuing, there's a lot of really exciting things going on. And I wanted to just lay out three of them. Reason number one, I am starting to feel a sea change in philanthropy. Um, I can't predict 100% sure how this is going to play out, but... I participated in two meetings in the fourth quarter of last year um, with big name philanthropists who are fundamentally rethinking how they do their gifting. They know that their friends and colleagues who also have a big corpus are rethinking the way they're doing their gifting and not rethinking it to to do less giving, but to do smarter giving, to do more strategic giving. And the, the ethos here is that we either spend a lot of money on big institutions that really might not need it, like they've got really strong balance sheets, or we're spending money on very specific isolated things that are more on the operating expenditure side of things and don't really get into the capital improvement, build, sustain care models that we all know is, is necessary in the, the weeks and months and years ahead. So that that change, that sense is that there will be more philanthropic contributions going into system redesign into a corpus with other philanthropic dollars, federal dollars, state dollars, corporate dollars that can ultimately be leveraged to do more good for more people on a sustainable basis. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges and opportunities we have. We can fund really important things and initiatives in the city and we do, and we'll continue to. But at the end of the day, we have a system in this city that can't really colloquially be defined as a system. It doesn't work well together and it needs capital and it needs smart people to help redesign how care works for uh, communities throughout the city of Chicago. I'm excited about that shift that I feel is is starting to occur. Um, And please know how invested I personally am in in being some part of, of contributing to that and driving it. Second thing I'm excited about might get a few groans and a few eye rolls. I come from the camp. I'll just tell a really quick story. I worked for Mike Levitt for a number of years. Some of you may have heard this. And Mike Levitt had been a, a three-term governor of the state of Utah. He had been the Health and Human Services Secretary for President Bush. And his big shtick as HHS Secretary, and then when he went back into the private market, was all around uh, value-based payments and incentive alignment and, and so on. And so I remember when I started at Levitt Partners he had this talk track that we were 25 years into a 40-year journey to transition to value-based care. When I left the organization eight years later, I was sitting, he was giving a speech to a big audience and he said, we're 25 years into a 40-year transition to value-based care. And I thought that's what it feels like, right? Like we all know the incentive structure needs to change. We know we need to pay for outputs and quality instead of paying for quantity and incentivizing a system that just really shows up at its best when we're all really sick. But it's been hard to move. The government's had trouble moving us. The state has had trouble moving us in that direction. We've had a bunch of false starts. And while there's a lot of exciting things going on under the surface, I am optimistic that we're going to start to see yet another sea change here. The transformation funding that HFS has made available over the last few years has gone to fund some initiatives that are really important to moving us in that direction. The other thing I'm excited about here is we have accessibility now to a bunch of data we've never had access to before, that gives us a much fuller picture of the economics of healthcare from commercial to managed Medicaid to the uninsured uh, than we've ever had before, we can start putting together this view of what's happening with a system or at a site level down to the unit price level of measurement. And that's really compelling because it gives us the opportunity to start looking at things as they really are and how those different elements uh, fold up and, and integrate into part of a larger system, commonly owned or not. The third thing I'm excited about or optimistic about, and I've always felt this way, We have this incredible gift of all the big urban cities I've been to, all kinds of conversations with folks like you in the room that I've had over the years. There is no city like the city of Chicago that has the resources, the men and the women that lead and steward those resources, that we have incredible infrastructure and community based organizations, federally qualified health centers, community mental health centers, and the men and women that run these facilities, that run these places, are honestly majority, they're people of amazing character, high quality character. They know what they know their stuff, they know the city, they know the communities they serve, they're passionate about the work that they do. And I think that infrastructure combined with opportunities and how we start to reorganize payment under HFS's leadership and under the leadership of the people in this room and the shift in philanthropy. I believe over the course of the next 12 to 18 months is going to give us an opportunity to do some things we've never really been able to do before in this city and in this state. And part of leading that charge will be our political leadership in Springfield. And we are delighted to have one of those political leaders with us this morning who will share some remarks, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll transition into a broader discussion with some other leaders in the city. Deputy Governor of Health and Human Services, Grace Ho, who has spent her career in service of communities and people, families throughout this state and in this city is with us this morning. And I'm excited that she's here because I think there's a lot of energy in Springfield. I think there's a lot of important conversations happening. I think there's a lot of hard conversations happening. Uh, And I think your leadership is going to be so seminal to us as we move forward.
2: Thank you, David. I feel like I could just say ditto and then we can go into questions. Good morning to everyone. Thank you for having me here. I am, I think, less than a hundred days into my position here as deputy governor for health and human services. So I know everything and I know nothing. And it is daunting to be here with you all to talk about what the future of healthcare is because we are the future of healthcare. What I'm going to try to do is to share the optimism that David has, share with you the experiences of the past three months. I started in October. And then, of course, reflecting on my time as the secretary of the department of human services which i served in that capacity since march of 2019 i have been working in every sector that is nonprofit as an adult not including my time at baker square and it's been an amazing journey to really work at the front lines at chinese american service league chinese mutual aid coming to state government as Assistant Secretary for the Department of Human Services, and then going to Woods Fund Chicago, which is one of the most amazing private foundations in the universe that really funds organizations to agitate, to push policy, to fight the brutality of structural racism and poverty. And then coming into this amazing position to work with a governor who actually really cares about the future of Illinois, and of course the future of healthcare. I hope to tell you some things that you may not have known, but you all are the experts. It's a little daunting because you all actually know far more than me. But I think in terms of this kind of theme of optimism, I do feel extremely optimistic. I think any public service leader has to be optimistic to be good at their job right? Because we believe in the power of change. We believe in government. And I am addicted to working in public service. It is exhilarating. It's terrifying. It's scary. It's amazing. But the governor has really been a magnet to, I think, a diverse set of people who believe in the power of government. And I see some other public servant allies here with me today. There's really nothing like it. And I probably sound like a recruiter because I also am A recruiter, we have new leadership in the biggest state agencies in Illinois, not just in the health and human services portfolio. I think the David's point, we have a new director of health care and family services, Lizzie Whitehorn, who I've had the opportunity to work for four years. She was a first assistant deputy governor. She's wicked smart, so organized, very compassionate and really interested in transforming HFS in a way that is community informed is really taking the opportunities that are in front of us, as David said, the the RFPing of the managed care organizations and the power that is Medicaid, right? And using it and leveraging it for so much more. And she has a new chief of staff, Dana Kelly, who comes from community-based healthcare, and they do have a lot of vacancies. We also have a new director who starts February 1st, Heidi Miller, for the Department of Children and Family Services. She comes from the Department of Juvenile Justice. She's worked in state government, I think, for probably over se- seven years, maybe eight years, spanning our administration, also with the Rauner administration, and has really transformed the juvenile justice system, it has dramatically decreased the number of youth in youth prisons in Illinois. And she brings that kind of child welfare philosophy to the Department of Children and Family Services. And we appreciate the leadership of Director Mark Smith, who will be leaving in in just a few days, working for one of the most tumultuous agencies. You can do no good, even when you are doing good. And I think the fact that Heidi was like, sign me up, I think it was really invigorating for me to see someone who knows actually what it's going to feel like to say, I want to do that. We also have a, a new incoming director soon to be announced at the Department on Aging, Paula Basta, who is the biggest cheerleader for getting older, I try to soak that in. When I'm around her, she retired at the end of last year. We have an amazing interim director right now, Becky Dragu, and we'll be naming the new director in the next couple weeks, which I'm really excited about. And there's so many opportunities and great need around making sure that our growing older adult population right, is cared for in a variety of ways and protected and honored as well. And so we have some exciting things that are coming down the pike in that regard. And then, of course, the Secretary of the Department of Human Services, Dulce Quintero, who who many of you know came from Erie Health. I've worked with them since, I think, May of 2019. Uh, They are one of the most vibrant, funny, earnest, compassionate, and strong leaders that I've ever had the opportunity to know. And I'm grateful that they have had the opportunity to go from our assistant secretary to the secretary. And if you don't know them, you should absolutely get to know them. The Department of Human Services, I think, was a good training ground to be deputy governor for Health and Human Services because DHS is so vast. And I'm just going to say a few minutes about DHS for just a moment. Because it, when I first started in 2019, our first charge was, you got to do the census. And I'm like, what? So we were in charge of the census outreach for the state of Illinois in 2019. And we actually had one of the best response rates across all of the United States of America. And actually, we were just able to uncover additional folks who were in larger facilities that weren't uncounted for. What does that have to do with human services? What does that have to do with healthcare? And I was, I was, as I was reflecting on my remarks today, I was thinking, healthcare is actually everything. Because the census is also healthcare. It actually is an equation that gets factored into how much federal financial participation we get through the Medicaid program as well as other federal programs. So the census is also healthcare and we are able to do an amazing um, job in partnership with community. And I think that's the other piece that gives me optimism uh, not only about the leadership of our governor but that we believe that the equation includes community. So if you look at the leaders of our agency, it includes folks who ran community-based organizations like me. It includes people who have worked at FQHCs. And we need to have the experience of working on both sides and have that trust. And, And you can only go far if you have trust. And so I feel deeply honored that I've been entrusted to not only not be a part of the administration as a member of the cabinet, but now I'm responsible Um, for catalyzing, leveraging, and supporting 10 cabinet members across the health and human services portfolio. And that includes all the agencies that I just mentioned, but also the Illinois Housing Development Authority, the Department of Human Rights, the Human Rights Commission, Guardianship and Advocacy Commission. Did I do all of those? Public (laughs) health, yeah, public health I didn't mention. And Samir is a relatively new leader, and he's just extremely... Collaborative, And I think the other thing that actually gives me great hope is that we have this team of folks who work together, who like each other, who trust each other and who know that we cannot work in our own agency confines. And you've seen that during the first part, the first four years, which was we have a new chief homelessness officer who's Christine Haley. We have a chief Olmsted officer, actually, that we just recently announced to work across agencies to ensure people with disabilities have the opportunity to live in community. We have a chief behavioral health officer. We have a chief uh, children's behavioral health transformation initiative. Director, And the the idea behind that was that we we have to work within our operational silos because you have to have order and management, but you also need to know that people who are older adults or people with disabilities or people who are low-income families, they don't just say, okay, I understand that these are DHS services. They don't know what that is and they shouldn't have to. How do we work across government? And we have a very collaborative team right now, which I'm really excited about. I think the other piece that gives me optimism as part of my own created onboarding process, there's no grace period when you go into the governor's office. And because I've been working in the administration, I'm very familiar. I think people are like, okay, out of DHS into the governor's office, go. And it has been drinking from multiple fire hoses, building the plane while we're flying it, building the ship, all the metaphors that we've created and, and thought about, especially during COVID is certainly true. But what I've been trying to do is to protect also time to learn because I know, I think one of the most important things as a leader to know is what you absolutely do not know and have no idea about. And so when I first started um said to the cabinet directors that I want I have to go out into the field. I have to get to know the frontline caseworkers. I want to shadow DCFS workers. I want to meet with community providers. And so I'm making sure that I'm carving time out of my schedule in order to do that and that has been profoundly moving and inspiring. We did a couple of town halls with DCFS caseworkers and we went to their simulation training center. And I thought the simulation was going to be in front of a computer like driver's ed, but it was actually a a room, like a door into a room that kind of replicated the circumstances by which a caseworker would have to knock on the door and open it. And I had this realization that there are individuals all across the state who have to leave their office and are called to go to visit a home that they've never been to, having no idea what is on the other side of that door and try to, to potentially remove a child from that circumstance. And that's terrifying, right? And what we ask our frontline workers to do is truly heroic, but the only thing that you hear is the noise and the challenges and what's working. But I think what gives me hope is that there are workers who say, I want to do that. I'm going to drive this young person to a shelter. I'm going to stay with this young person in the office overnight because there are no other options. Government is so good and so powerful if it is done in community. And that is absolutely uh, what we are trying to do. I think it's also important to recognize what we actually have accomplished over the past four years as we look into the future. When I started at DHS, we had a Medicaid backlog of 140,000 people who were waiting between 45 days and three years to find out whether they were eligible for Medicaid, not to even receive the card, but to even know, which is absolutely ridiculous. We would never put up with that but that's okay because they're low income or that's okay because of this or that. And we came in and completely revamped the system. We use management, compassion, and diligence to uh, reverse that within a year, which no other administration ever was able to do. And that was with DHS and HFS and our community providers as well. The same was with the SNAP program. Uh, We were not providing SNAP Food stamps in a timely way. In fact, barely over fifty percent of people who are applying for SNAP, we're receiving it in a timely way. This is food, right? And so I think what gives me optimism is that this administration won't just won't put up for that. And it's not easy, but we are never going to leave the table, and to turn away from things that are just have been historically impossible. David talked about value based. Healthcare, one of the things that I really need to get my head more wrapped around and understanding. And we had the opportunity to get a briefing with Lurie Children's Hospital and learned about their amazing pilot that's happening on the West Side, a seven year grant that they've gotten from CMMS to really figure out how that can come to life. And I'm really fascinated because I want to understand how government can be a part of the solution in making that happen. Healthcare is the creation of the Office of Violence Prevention, the Office to Reduce Gun Violence in Illinois, the Home Illinois Office. There's so many things that are happening that are good. There's a lot to be said around what the governor has done to to make sure that there is choice. In our state and we've seen growth as you may know in terms of the numbers of women and people who are pregnant who come to illinois seeking reproductive health care and we should be so proud of our state in that way i think before i stop is the migrant crisis or the migrant mission we are working in partnership with the city of chicago it may not look evident If you read the papers, the way that I describe it to people is there are two planes. There's the rhetoric, similar to the DCFS rhetoric. And then there's actually what I know is happening, which is we work together with them on a daily basis on a unsolutionable problem that has been created by one person who is the governor of Texas. There's no other way to look at it. It's not partisan. I actually went to the border a year and a half ago, we saw what was happening. There are record numbers of people who are coming through detention facilities who are then being released because the federal government does not have enough capacity to do the administrative processes that are required. And then they get on buses and they are dropped off at the smallest of nonprofit organizations you can imagine that are run by one or two people and a bunch of volunteers. So Governor Abbott, which I I think, if you give the benefit of the doubt, he was sending a message to the country and to federal lawmakers to say, the Southwest border cannot absorb, cannot meet the needs of these individuals. And I absolutely 100% agree. I think the the folks who are coming to the city are a, a new kind of wave of migrants who don't have the ties of recent arrivals. So they don't have the network, the sponsors, the mutual aid organizations yet. We know it will come because there have been previous uh, populations that have, have made it work. But you put that in combination with the fact that we are being targeted strategically and deliberately to send a message to the country, I think is now it's beyond a message, right? It is now cruel. And when you are placed in a position where you're backed into a corner and there are no solutions, right? And I think we're also working against the larger narrative that nobody wants to put additional resources in it. So what is the solution? There's been a lot of advocacy and conversations with the White House and the federal government. There has to be better coordination. But I know many of you are actually helping to care for these new individuals. And I want to thank you for that. People are coming with zero things and they are received with compassion and hope. And so they're, the future of healthcare are all the things that I talked about, which is why it's so hard. But I guess I want to leave you with there are going to be more opportunities to really figure out how all of this is woven together. There's opportunities with the 1115 waiver, which will make sure that a lot of the social determinants of health are factored in and can be reimbursable. And then the last thing that I'll say is to give a huge shout out to Cook County and their pioneering effort to eliminate medical debt, which is absolutely amazing. And we want to learn from that and figure out um, how that can be replicated. I just appreciate all of you. And I hope that was helpful. And I I welcome the opportunity to work together in the future.
3: Grateful to the deputy governor for doing a very nice job of setting up this panel to dig in deeper as we think about Illinois and the transition really to become what I'm going to refer to as a sanctuary state in a number of different ways that our panelists are going to discuss. So instead of reciting their awesome resumes, I will let them start by introducing themselves and really talking about what they're working on specifically. I'm going to ask you to choose one maybe thing as we get started, because we're going to dig in. I think you're working on your organization in your role that aligns to that idea of a sanctuary state of really taking care of people and their health care here in Illinois.
4: Hello, everyone. Uh, Mike Ziri, the Director of Public Policy at Equality Illinois. Equality Illinois is the state's LGBTQ plus civil rights organization. And I just celebrated my ninth anniversary with the organization. And just for perspective, what a policy director does is uh, I get to go to Springfield a whole lot and make sure that the legislators and we have a great pro equality supermajorities in the House and Senate that they keep Illinois moving forward. <clears throat> and why that's important, to give some context, in the first of what are we, 23 days, 22, 23 days of January, three hundred and forty anti LGBTQ plus bills have been, already been introduced in state capitals across the country. If you look at last year this time, maybe ninety. 600 in all of 2023. So we're seeing all of these anti-LGBTQ plus bills, including some here introduced in Illinois. Those bills don't advance because of advocates, because of stakeholders, because of great pro-equality legislators, but they get introduced here. But in some states, they do pass. As an example, the Ohio Senate overrode the governor of Ohio's veto of a ban on gender-affirming care for youth. So now, Ohio joins the many states that have enacted a ban on gender-affirming care for youth. And if you just look at the states all around us, um, Indiana, Kentucky, Missouri, Iowa have all implemented bans on gender-affirming care for youth. This is best practice care based on medical standards that all the mainstream medical associations support and say is important to life-saving, life-affirming care. for those reasons, it's important that Illinois keep moving forward. And just anecdotally, to the point about a refuge state or an affirming state, we at Equality Illinois probably uh, were in person at 12 or probably 13, 14 Pride festivals across the state last year Chicago to Carbondale, Champaign, Peoria, Bloomington, all over. There are Pride festivals everywhere, and it's amazing. But at every single festival, someone came up to our booth and said, I just moved here from Missouri. I just moved here from Tennessee. And yes, Florida and Texas. And I came here for the protection of the laws of the state of Illinois because this is a state that supports access to reproductive health care, supports access to gender-affirming care. And our, our partners in Carbondale have told us that they have helped at least 12 families move and settle in Carbondale to escape the laws and the harsh laws of places like Tennessee. So for those reasons, we've it's our priority to keep Illinois moving forward. We know access to health care to affirming and equitable healthcare as a priority for the LGBTQ plus community, uh, because our community has told us that as part of our strategic planning process across the state. Um, and so we worked on a couple initiatives in the past, which I know we'll talk about healthcare cultural competency. We're working on some current campaigns about how do we ensure that all students in public schools receive age appropriate, medically accurate, inclusive sexual health education.
5: Kristen Schultz. I'm the chief strategy and operations officer at Planned Parenthood of Illinois. I have been with the organization four years. I started in January of 2020, 30 weeks pregnant. So it's been a super fun four years. And I focus on leading the operations with my clinical dyad of our 18 health centers across the state and several telehealth platforms. I also lead our strategic planning work with my senior leadership colleagues and of course our, our CEO. So what we're working on is we've gone through several different periods over the last really six years. And that was an understanding that we would lose protections for abortion rights, uh, at least at the fe- even at the federal level or even at the regional level. And so we had been preparing for the likelihood that we would see an influx of abortion patients, really starting with our CEO's tenure in 2016. So we were building the physical infrastructure, building our digital infrastructure. And then of course, with COVID, we saw a retraction of that. We saw a constriction of our ability to provide care during that time, then of course the labor shortage. So we've been through a slow period of growth, a constriction, and then through that period where we really believed that we would lose Roe v. Wade, we doubled down on our efforts to expand abortion access. And that's through a number of different strategies. And now we're at this point where we're 18 months out post the loss of Roe and really assessing what does the next phase of our growth look like and how do we remain sustainable in a totally different ecosystem, financially, operationally, strategically, with a continued influx of patients, which is not going away. Illinois received the most out-of-state abortion patients over the last year of any state in the country. And that's really a testament to our regulatory environment, our provider environment, our ability to expand access. And we've doubled down on that intentionally. And so to think about what the next phase looks like, I think our focus on building and remaining resilient in the face of continued threats requires a focus on equity, innovation, self and so we have to think about all of those things as it impacts our people, which our patients and our staff and our communities, our purpose and why we exist to provide care. The business, we have to be a sustainable organization into the long term and more importantly than ever, our ecosystem. And so how Planned Parenthood of Illinois operates, functions, partners more deeply into our local communities more closely with other partners in the state, and taking a a leadership position in the region and frankly across the country is what we're working on.
6: I am Steph Wilding, CEO of Community Health. Community Health is the nation's largest volunteer-based free health center. So you may have heard about a federally qualified health center and understand what they do and who they are. So the way I like to think about it and explain it is a free health center provides all the care in the same type of way that a federally qualified health center does. It's just how we pay for it is a little bit different. And how we pay for it means we provide it completely for free to primarily uninsured and also um, underinsured patients. So we have been um, doing this work for over 30 years. And so you can imagine one of the areas of focus for us as of late has been the new arrivals crisis. Community health is a health center that serves a primarily immigrant community and immigrant population. And so we have been both on the front lines in this humanitarian crisis, including providing health care in the police precincts, as well as health care in our health centers. And then we've also been, from an advocacy and sort of strategy perspective, really pushing our elected officials and our leaders to ensure that health care is integrated into every phase phase and place in this humanitarian crisis. Whether uh, one, one of our new neighbors finds themselves in a police precinct, at a landing zone, in a shelter, or even in an apartment, how are we centering their health And wellness in every phase of their experience as they settle into our city. And so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about immigrant healthcare, talk about new arrivals healthcare. And as I do, I just wanted to note that I am not someone who has a lived experience of being an immigrant. So as I speak, I hope that everyone knows that I speak coming from a place of my professional experience, of listening to the community of a lot of humility, but I I do think it's important to note that I don't have the lived experience of the patients that we serve and of the issues that I'll be discussing, and I just wanted to note that.
3: I'd like to start by digging in a little bit deeper, particularly we're going to start with you, Kristen, about the strategies, how the actual strategies have changed at Planned Parenthood given both funding and policy changes over the past few years. Could you dig in a little bit?
5: Like I said, we have focused on a number of different areas in order to expand access, but not only for abortion care, but also for gender affirming care and basic family planning needs. And that was actually one of the core fundamental beliefs in our expansion efforts was how we remained and centered equity for our communities and for our both geographically and also our communities of patients to ensure that we weren't over indexing in care for out-of-state abortion need and just eroding local community resources. So in order to do this, we've expanded our, our physical footprint in 2018. We opened our Flossmoor Health Center in 2020. We opened our Waukegan Health Center in 2022. We doubled the size of our Champaign Health Center. And you can see how these are all you mm-hmm. know, border <clears throat> health centers and that's by design. And happy to announce that in December, we opened our Carbondale Health Center. <laughs> So, you can see that we had a <clears throat> kind of a northern physical strategy, an eastern physical strategy, a southern physical strategy, and we're lucky to work with really excellent partners to the west with our Fairview Heights Planned Parenthood, run by the St. Louis affiliate, and Hope Clinic, and a number of other independent providers. And at the same time, we were building our digital infrastructure. So, as many healthcare organizations experienced through the pandemic, our Really, not even necessarily by design or by strategy, but our telehealth presence expanded pretty significantly. In addition, we also focused on these wraparound services to provide support for our mainly our abortion patients, but really a rising tide lifts all boats. We expanded our behavioral health clinician team. We built a patient navigation team, which helps patients get from their home to receive care in Illinois. We expanded our contact center, our infrastructure, everything had to expand as we contemplated seeing more abortion patients. And at this point, we've seen abortion patients from 41 states, and we've seen over a 50% increase in in abortion demand. And that's limited by our own capacity. And so some of the regulations, and you may have seen some of this work in the media that post-Roe v. Wade, the total number of abortions in the United States Increased. It didn't increase. It didn't decrease. Mm-hmm. And that's a testament to some of the uh, access states like Illinois further increasing measures to allow for more accessible care. Telemedicine, medication abortion via telemedicine, advanced nurse practitioners being able to provide procedural care. All of these things in protected states like Illinois are actually doubling down on access and, it, and allowing an increase. So that doesn't care for the patients that are actually having to go from Texas or Florida to get to us. Our average one-way patient journey is over 180 miles for our out-of-state patients. And our average spend to support those patients is almost $500 per patient to get them from point A to point B. And that doesn't include lost wages, childcare, potential loss of risk of their job, so many different factors that go into that. And that's a net new demand to the entire ecosystem that there isn't direct financial support for. And so we've had the good fortune to rely on private support for that. But is that sustainable in the long term when that net new demand to the ecosystem does not go away and does not have a funding source? So those are the things we continue to contemplate moving forward. Um, Steph, could you
3: talk, you talked a little bit about going to where people are, Mm -hmm. right? Could you talk a little bit about how your actual services have changed and how that affects your staffing, right? What have you had to do in light of this crisis?
6: Yeah, so talking a little bit about this, maybe expanding even beyond the last 10 months or so, community health, like every healthcare provider, was on the front lines during a global pandemic. In fact, it has been four straight years for us of crisis, which is a whole other panel we could probably have, right? (laughs) (laughs) For the workforce, truly. We laugh, but truly, that's certainly a theme. But I think for community health, very early on in the pandemic, we recognized that the way that we had been before was a thing of the past. And we recognized that quickly. And so within a year of the pandemic, community health actually piloted an innovative health center type called a micro clinic. And so this is a micro, literally it's, that's a literal term. It is a micro health center and it's co-located inside of community-based organizations that are addressing our communities and our patients' social determinants of health, food access, child care, immigration assistance, et cetera. And essentially we're becoming roommates with that organization, but not in the typical way that you see in healthcare, where you're investing millions and millions of dollars to a large freestanding facility. This is two to three exam rooms, a behavioral health room, a lab in an organization where when we have a patient who has food insecurity, instead of giving them a printout of all the food banks near their home, were able to say, go up the hall, talk to Roxana. She's going to get you emergency food today and get you enrolled in the food access program. And the reason that we started opening these clinics is because community health is located in the like Westtown Humboldt Park neighborhood, but we see patients from every single zip code in the city of Chicago because we're a free health center for uninsured people. And so we found that we had pockets and concentrations of patients in neighborhoods where they were traveling with the same theme, 80 minutes one way on public transportation, that is a half day off of work, that is lost wages, that is expense for child care, that's increasing food insecurity that week because you took a half day off of work. And so we wanted to rethink space and place for point of care to meet our patients where they were at, rather than consistently requiring them to come to us. And so we've opened up two micro clinics so far with more to come and some exciting announcements to come. Um, but... What we have found now is placing these access doors in the community because of one crisis has now served these patients in a new crisis, which is what we're experiencing right now, which is the migrant crisis. And and challenging ourselves as an organization to think differently about where we place ourselves to be there for the community, for example, resulted in us with less than 10 days notice standing up a street medicine program for the first time ever in our history in May to go out to the precincts and provide healthcare in the precincts and make sure folks had linkage back to care at not just our headquarters location, but also our microclinics, which were closer for folks who created greater access, broke down some of the barriers that immigrant communities experience, which are the things we've named childcare, transportation, but also the added effect of am I safe to go to this place, will I get in trouble? Will this be a public charge against a future application to become uh, a citizen and resident of the United States? And so okay, community health, we are really holding on to those early lessons that we experienced in literally like the first couple of months of the pandemic to challenge the the way we thought healthcare was working before the pandemic and it wasn't. And I think that has really supported our ability to place ourselves where people needed us most in the last 10 months. And when we think about workforce, community health, as I mentioned, is a little bit of a different type of health center. So our workforce is not only our employees, but it's also our volunteers. And so we're actually in a very, I would call it beautifully unique position to ramp up access much more quickly than we in traditional healthcare settings because we rely not only on employees, but also providers. When we needed to, for example, launch street medicine in 10 days, we put a call out to our providers. And within two days, we had a waiting list of MDs who wanted to go out to the precincts with us, with our staff, as well as all the other volunteers. Same with our interpreters, same with our triage and flow volunteers. And so... One of the beautiful things about free clinics is that we structure our staffing a little bit different, and that allows us to be more nimble, be more flexible, and in this case, really be on the front lines immediately in a crisis doing something we had never done before. And so when we experience workforce shortages, which... We're not unique in that way, I can tell you that. We are able to tap into our volunteer workforce. So to give you guys some perspective, Community Health has 50 employees, but we have over a thousand volunteers. And asking a part-time provider who's maybe in our clinic four times a month to come in five times a month is something that's easier to do than to ask a full-time provider already working probably more than 40 hours a week to take on more patients or take on more time. And so in that way, we have a nimbleness and flexibility to adapt to community needs quickly and in the moment, because we're not only reliant on a paid workforce, but also a volunteer workforce.
3: Mike, we're going to come to you and could you talk a little bit, even in Illinois, Mm -hmm. right? There's still barriers, Mm -hmm. right? Can you talk a little bit about the barriers that the LGBTQ community bases and the current strategies or priorities that you're working on right
4: Mm -hmm. here? Yeah, Um, absolutely. I do want to first say we're not a direct service provider, so we take the experiences and what providers tell us and help turn that into policy. And I was telling Kristen earlier, there's not a day that goes by that I don't talk to the policy and government affairs team at Planned Parenthood Illinois. We are so close at the Capitol and on everything and and we also talked to our network, there's a great, there's a beautiful constellation of LGBTQ plus community organizations across the state. Carbondale's Rainbow Cafe, um, Howard Brown Health, uh, AIDS Foundation, Peoria Proud, et cetera. As part of our strategic planning process organizationally, two years ago, we did a big listening campaign across the state of community members, allies, political leaders, business leaders, et cetera, to that point. Like, where does it still hurt? Yes, we've got all these great laws in Illinois, but where is the pain? And the areas, of course, none of the stories fit neatly into any one to- bucket totally, but one of the major areas was access to affirming and equitable health care. And since stories are my currency in trade, because I tell those stories, share those stories with legislators to move policy, I always remember the story from Carbondale, and this has been a few years ago, but I always remember the story of the trans young person at the rainbow cafe who told us that because they could not identify an affirming provider in their community who would support them and affirm them as a young trans person and not misgender them etc they would travel to howard brown and it, we heard that and our ceo and i thought we didn't know howard brown was opening satellite offices but no they would travel five hours one way to access an affirming provider mm. and That is one of the barriers, access to affirming care and providers. We also heard stories of of individuals who, when they would go to uh, get a prescription for PrEP, which is the, the once a day medication that is effective at preventing an HIV infection, they would ask for the prescription and their doctor would either not know what it is or B, would shame them for being sexually active so the lack of affirming care, the lack of equitable care, the lack of providers who understand the health needs of a trans individual, but also wrapped up in that is barriers around access to housing. For instance, 40% of homeless youth are LGBTQ+. Economic inequality, 25% of LGBT Illinoisans experience poverty, 30% for trans Illinoisans. So high rates of economic inequality and justice, lack of access to affirming housing. We also heard concerns about uh, inequalities in the criminal legal system, in the criminal justice space. So, and also of course, bullying and harassment in schools and the fact that curriculum does not acknowledge the existence of LGBTQ people. And we've done some work to change that over the last couple of years. But all of those factors and barriers work together that in some places, identity documents don't reflect or aren't allowed to reflect who that individual authentically is. And I know there's some work happening right now to bring the X marker online for driver's licenses. If you're if your systems in the healthcare space haven't already adapted and added the X marker to your systems, please do that because it's going to happen. And you're going to have to 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 work with uh, the driver's license when they are updated in the coming months. So those are just some of the bears. One other one I wanted to mention, we've heard stories about this more frequently is individuals who, particularly trans folks, who go to a healthcare provider seeking healthcare, they have their initial reviews and sessions with their provider, and maybe they're gonna have some procedure. Then they get to the the hospital and the hospital says, oh, we don't offer that service to trans folks for non-medical reasons. So there's also a lack of transparency among healthcare providers of what services are covered and not covered for non-medical reasons. And Colorado, I think two years ago, just passed legislation requiring that healthcare providers, clinics, hospitals must provide advance notice of the medical procedures they do not provide for non medical reasons. So, if there's a religious reason, the hospital doesn't provide it. Because most patients have no clue if the hospital is owned by a religious entity or not, they just go because they seek care. And then you have the trauma of being told, "Oh no, this procedure that you've been prepared for for months with your provider, you now have to find somewhere else." So that issue of healthcare transparency is is, is a huge barrier as well.
3: Yeah, I'm going to go 180 degrees from barriers to talking about access, and a number of you have already spoken about transportation, right? <laughs> and you're also serving out of state patients. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how are you dealing with follow-up care? I know, Kristen, you have a navigation team, right? And so that's where I'd like to take the conversation maybe, Kristen, you can kick us off about how are you making sure that patients, yes, can get to the care, but then that the follow-up care is provided too. Hmm. It's not a hard
5: to question. Start on that one. Hard. Yeah, I'll say that We, our navigation team, and our thinking around how we provide navigation really is rooted in learning from the experts in organizations like the Chicago Abortion Fund and other funds who have been doing this work for decades. And as we thought about launching a navigation team, we knew that was not our core competency. And so how do we learn from folks who have been doing this and really support their expertise and increase their capacity. Our first strategy was actually to be a grantor to Chicago Abortion Fund to effectively, I don't know what it was, quadruple their capacity over this time period. And so it just speaks to this ecosystem piece first, which is let's rely on the expertise and the experience of the folks who have been doing this long before an organization like Planned Parenthood of Illinois has stepped into that. And so that partnership is extremely important. That said, there is still an internal need for us to have folks who say, a patient has presented to us and now they can't get home. (laughs) And so there is a just-in-time element to the need for practical support. And so we now have five, six, I think now just six navigators that really initiated their care on abortion patients. But we've expanded our practical support care also to folks seeking gender-affirming care in Illinois because of the regulations across the region. But those needs are actually very different. And so we're still learning around about what is a practical support program look like for abortion care, which by and large is coming, getting one visit, staying a day or two, depending on the nature of your visit, maybe three, supporting patients through that. And then they go home. And so there is a follow-up care piece there because patients who are seeking abortion care, going back to a restricted state, have immense fear around getting follow-up care in their home state. Mm-hmm. And so luckily Planned Parenthoods have this nationwide infrastructure where there is a safe place mostly for them to go. They can visit a Planned Parenthood if it's local to them and they get to go for miscarriage management in their home state. But we're very cautious about data, transparency, giving the right amount of information to support patients to receive that follow-up care without putting them at risk in their restricted state. And that means even things like was a prescription sent to a pharmacy for pain meds and what diagnosis code was attached to those pain meds, like very detailed components that we had to really pull apart every little piece of that patient's visit and balancing patient access, patient transparency, patient data to their own access to their own data versus the risk in their home state. So the back to the practical support question, we are supporting patients with bus Planes, trains, automobiles, food stipends, Uber support, all of these intricate pieces, and working again with the Chicago Abortion Fund in partnership for some of those other deeper things like childcare. And as we look at our support of our gender affirming hormone therapy patients or our gender affirming care patients who are seeing us, what becomes tricky is that's a monthly or quarterly or semi-annually annual visit that isn't a single time we navigate you and then you return to your home state. And so it's one of the reasons why we're so excited about our presence in Carpendale now. And we've been able to, to go in and pull from our infrastructure patients who were scheduled to be seen at Champaign or Springfield and call them and say, your trip now just got six hours shorter. And that is where it feels like the physical access is so important. We see 10% of our visit volume now is gender-affirming hormone care. That's such so, so important to us, as is the care and concern for the fact that anyone with a uterus may need an abortion. And so how we provide gender-neutral, compassionate care for transgender population, folks who are non-binary who come in needing abortion care is a key focus for us.
4: I'm glad you mentioned the policy implications, because what happens when someone receives care that is lawful in Illinois, but then goes back to Missouri and uh, a prosecutor says, you have broken the law of Missouri. Abortion is murder in the state of Missouri, and you just had an abortion in Illinois. I demand to see your medical records and to use that to charge someone. So about a year ago, Planned Parenthood, Equality Illinois, ACLU, parent of the St. Louis region we all work together with Representative Cassidy and Senator Villanueva on a bill the patient provider protection act Mm -hmm. providing protections for both providers and patients who come to Illinois seeking care what happens when their home states demands medical records in order to further a prosecution so there are some protections in place a shield law a refuge law there but there are other things like outside of the clinic what happens if a state wants to charge somebody for receiving um, an abortion or gender-affirming care that's criminalized in that home state, and they say, I'm going to go to local law enforcement in Jackson County, Carbondale, and I'm going to demand the automated license plate reader information to prove that you were in Carbondale and you were parked at that clinic. that So what, what also has passed last year, thanks to Secretary of State Giannullius, is the first-ever regulations on how... Law enforcement in Illinois can share license plate reader data with other states if the the request is because of a furtherance of an investigation around access to gender-affirming care, reproductive health care, immigration status. The laws of the state will continue to have to be innovative because we can't honestly predict all the cruel and evil ways Mm -hmm. that other states are going to continue to criminalize lawful health care. But there's that policy implication of what happens when someone goes back to their home state and Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis or Governor Parsons of Missouri or whoever want to go after someone for receiving lawful health care in the state of Illinois, things we have to think about in our laws here.
3: And those laws continue to change. Talking about access, could you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about balancing the services that are emergency right now? crisis versus long-term that you have maybe seen patients for a while? And how are you balancing that? And how are you thinking about it going into the future?
6: Yeah, it's such an important question. And I think one of the challenges with answering this question is that we don't have the answer to the key inputs that influence a major factor here, which is how many folks are going to continue to come to our incredible city. And when I say continue to come, be set to our city. Let me be clear there. And right now, we are enjoying a little bit of a lull in the, to a certain degree, what is trafficking compared to what we saw in December. And the city anticipates that will remain ish through March 1st. And then we can anticipate that March. Through the dnc in chicago we are going to see an influx of people being sent to chicago unlike anything we have seen yet which is really startling and really alarming because despite incredible people at the city at the state on the ground and community working around the clock it still was not enough during some of the largest surges in the last 10 months And one of the things that we're doing to prepare for that is we are in a very aggressive, active cycle of volunteer recruitment for providers, for Spanish-speaking interpreters, for Spanish-speaking lab workers, triage workers, to ensure that we have the balance of workforce in place. We also had some new positions that were to be starting this summer, all of those start dates, thanks to increased support um, through our partners at the Illinois Department of Public Health. Those positions will be starting March 1st to make sure that we're in place. So my, my comrades here trying to think and anticipate the worst case scenario and to, to build up the infrastructure for that. But transparently, um, I've been with community health for four years. I certainly looked at many years of access data once I started. And I can tell you that this is the longest waitlist and wait time we've ever had. This is the busiest we've ever been. We're doing things and strategies that we have never had to do before. Strategic overbooking. We've expanded access, hours access at one of our locations by 55%, 30% at another Uh, 20% of another, and we're at capacity. And, But I think this is where rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, we have to continue to lean into what we know we do exceptionally well, which is to be an excellent primary care home for immigrant communities. And so one of the strategies we have been deploying and are are going to continue to expand on is we're very proud of establishing mobile care and street medicine and doing that for the first time ever. And what we learned is it is very limited what you can do on the ground. It is assessment and triage and deciding, do you need care right now? Do you need care tomorrow? Or do you need care in a month? Or actually you're stable enough and the system's overrun. So we're just going to have you sit tight. And there are amazing organizations out there who are doing that work. Certainly folks who are in the shelters like Lawndale Christian, like Heartland, but also other volunteer groups like the Mobile Migrant Health Team, Street Medicine Chicago, Humboldt Park Health, who are going out and doing exceptional assessment, triage, and linkage to care. And so what we have done, similar to what I am hearing my colleagues also say here, is like we're breaking down the silos between our organizations and really trying to lean into... So that's really where we're trying to strike a balance is we're preparing for another unprecedented influx while we're also continuing to deepen those linkages and partnerships and create efficiencies in that. So wherever we can partner build capacity and create efficiencies. That's really what we're trying to focus on. Not
3: wider, deeper, deeper. We need to work. We need to collaborate. Not wider, Not maybe not more. <laughs> deeper. Let's do what we do well. I want to ask you all to comment on David's comment at the beginning, to come full circle about what you're thinking about, what you're feeling about funding. We, as nonprofits, and I work with mostly nonprofits, it's an issue, right? We constantly are thinking about funding streams and in healthcare, most of us are really worried about reimbursement, right? And so what's your gut as we're going into 2024, an election year? What are you thinking about funding?
4: Yeah, one thing as part of our strategic planning process that we really saw is that LGBTQ plus led and serving organizations in Illinois um, are woefully underfunded with public and private dollars relative to non LGBTQ organizations. So I know it's a priority for our CEO. We just brought on board a new director of leadership capacity building to support our LGBTQ partners with their leadership development and also broadening that, that access to funding because uh, these are organizations that provide critical supports for housing, for healthcare. And that's an area of challenge that we're focused on. We also know the state budget this year is gonna be very, it's gonna be tighter than in years past. The needs will outweigh, will exceed the available revenues. Um, so that's a, a challenge um, as well. So there are also looking at other maybe non-funding mechanisms as well. We have, obviously we have a, a, a few bills we're working on this year in different spaces.
5: So I think about this in a couple different lanes most of Planned Parenthood of Illinois' revenue comes from patient services. We're a healthcare provider like anybody else. We accept commercial insurance. So if you're commercially insured and you're a patient, come see us for your care, Medicaid, and time of service patients, of course. And that's increasing with our out-of-state patient base. And like everyone, we're experiencing rising costs, particularly around labor and reduced reimbursement and more challenges and administrative burden around reimbursement. And so... The first really theme or vein around our financials is refining the model. We have to step into not only 2023, but really 2028 in terms of reimbursement models, including value-based care, and how to be more efficient with our care provision model and finding lower cost sites of care and ways to provide that care. The other is really in the ecosystem. And so as we think about our access to the funding that you mentioned, ours is underflowing to LGBTQ uh, organizations. As we think about Planned Parenthood's access to those, we have some of those resources. We have an institutional giving team that allows us to be really savvy at those applications. And so how do we build in ecosystem partnerships of smaller organizations that don't have those same resources so that Not only do we deliver care arm in arm, but we actually seek funding arm in arm in order to increase the capacity of others who don't have the same resources to even get in the door to get the dollars. And so I think building the ecosystem earlier in that funding pipeline is critical. And then our reliance on private dollars does not go away. And I think going back to those earlier comments, the more we see institutional donors building trust. I'll go back to that trust piece too, of giving unrestricted dollars that then they say, I trust your organization to use it at its highest and best and really understanding how we use those dollars and put them to capacity building investments and not just operating funds, how we grow the infrastructure, grow the footprint, grow the relationships, grow the data flow, all of those things in order to increase are the three sort of lenses I think about when I think about our real focus on financial sustainability. And lastly, when we think about our financial sustainability, recognizing that some of the ways in which we hinder our financial outcomes are directly related to our explicit choices for equity. Mm -hmm. We don't have exactly the same model that you do, but we provide an immense amount of subsidizer free care. And our choice to continue to do that has to remain in balance with our financial sustainability. We think about it as equity, access, and financial sustainability. And how do we remain in balance with those three and stay to our values while keeping the lights on?
6: Yeah, I said at the top of this session that we're a free health center. And so the key thing to know about that is how we pay for our work is a little bit different. So one thing to note: we don't bill insurance. And so when we're talking about reimbursements and the state of that, thankfully, that's not a challenge that, that we have, certainly other challenges. So, so very quickly about community health business models. So we have three pillars, the first of which is volunteerism. If any of you have a PL reporting to you, you know that personnel is your most expensive line item. And we are able to fuel much of our mission through volu- volunteerism. The second pillar in our business model is philanthropy, self-explanatory. And then our third pillar is partnerships, whether that's partnering with large academic medical institutions in their residency training programs or their med students who do three-year rotations at our health center Or partnering with large corporations like Quest Diagnostics, for example, who donates all of our lab services for free, or pharmaceutical companies who, you know, we give out 35,000 prescriptions a year and we don't pay anything for those medications and neither do our patients because they're donated. And so when we are thinking about our own financial sustainability, how we think about diversification in revenue for us is not only dollars, but it's also those opportunities for donated goods and services? And how do we talk about our value proposition as a free health center in the space? I would imagine there are many who this is the first time you're learning about a free health center. And yet there are 52 of us in the state of Illinois, and I believe 20 of us in the city of Chicago, and we are doing work. And the way that I like to talk about the free and charitable clinic sector is that not only are we a key pillar in the ecosystem. But in some ways we're also like that foam spray and the more space, like the more foam we can spray by having an uninsured person come to community health get really exceptional care, we're saving money for the academic medical institutions and their emergency departments or a federally qualified health center who may be balancing on very thin margins on their payer mix. One of the things that I think we have been focusing on um, as a sector, though, is recognizing that foam spray impact and saying to the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago, we have a place in this, we have a seat at the table, and recognize that through the appropriate monetary contributions, grant making, et cetera, which is not something our sector has done before. And so in some ways we're like doing things backwards than what you've seen. And so one of the things we're really proud of is that last year for the first time ever, the um, entire Illinois free and charitable clinic sector was given a grant through the Illinois Department of Public Health, recognizing the role that we play. And so as we continue to increase our diversification and revenue with donated goods and services, Certainly philanthropy, and I echo the sentiments, if there's any philanthropy folks in the room, we know what to do with our dollars. And so those general operating support that allow us to either increase operations, build capacity, are so critical. And I really advocate to let us do what we do well. We also want to make sure that we are continuing to be a seat at the table at the state and city level because we're out there foam spraying everywhere to make sure that this foundation stays strong and that we're supporting our other health sector folks, hospitals, FQHCs. So that's really been an area of focus that that we have had and proud to say that we did receive a second year of funding from the state of Illinois and we'll continue to advocate for our role and our place and um, having a seat at that table.
3: That's great. Thank you. I think that the deputy governor did a nice job of, sharing her excitement right about public service about uh the nonprofit sector and before we go i just want to leave on a positive note and so i just want to hear what gets you up in the morning to do your job that you're excited about as we head into and think about this year i'm always excited
6: my dad calls me his hummingbird on speed to give folks from that perspective <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to try to tell a quick story, and there's some intersection with other folks on the panel today. So, one, I'm committed to healthcare justice, as the the deputy governor said. Healthcare is everything, but the fact of the matter is, healthcare is not for everyone in this country, and, and unfortunately, not even in our state. And so, I'm reminded of something that occurred over the summer when we were providing care in the precincts. And it was a day that typically in healthcare would be considered, ooh, this was a failure. We only saw three patients that day, right? Oh my gosh, all these resources. But one of the people that we saw, we were able to do a number of point of care testing, which included pregnancy. And this person's pregnancy test came back positive. And it was very clear that this was not happy news. Not just because she was sleeping inside of a precinct. And as she sat there talking to our medical provider with her two-year-old daughter playing around and toddling, toddling as they do, she shared how this pregnancy was the result of a kidnapping and rape that occurred on her way to the United States and that she feared what would happen if her husband were to find out. And we were able to steward her into Community Health's main location immediately. We connected her with Planned Parenthood and with other um, organizations that also gave her a private space to make the decision that she needed to do for her safety, for her body, and for the ripple effect that would have on her daughter. And so every time I feel like I'm lining up to the cliff, the precipice of burnout, I remember those individual stories because every single day, despite best efforts and intentions, our safety net loses people. And when we catch them, I cling to that. And when I hear folks and the work that you all are doing, I just have, in a dystopian time, I still have so much hope because when you show up to the police precinct, for example, we weren't the only people there. There were dozens of volunteers, dozens of people dropping things off, bringing food. In the midst of horrific times when you can cling to these moments of hope, cling to those moments of when you catch somebody, that's what keeps me going. And every day I do what I can and I fight as hard as I can to make sure that we are catching folks while I try to partner with someone amazing like the deputy governor, who's trying to build a better net. So
5: the reality is that that's, that is the thing. And I think as we consider partnering with, our communities, and our workforce, and giving a share of voice to the people impacted by the decisions that us as organizations and us as leaders are making. Healthcare is a deeply entrenched, old school, broken system. And I am enthusiastic about the ways that we can really flip the script as we look towards the future in order to make it better, more accessible, more affordable, more compassionate for the patients that we serve. And I I take that responsibility very seriously, as I know
4: you both do. I think what makes me hopeful in the face of, like I said, 340 anti forty anti-LGBTQ bills, a hostile Supreme Court, an election year, um, is the beautiful, resilient, and fierce LGBTQ plus communities everywhere in the state of Illinois. I, I remember, just a, a quick story, I remember when I first started Equality Illinois nine years ago, I went to a legislator who out, who represented a, a district outside of Chicago, and I started talking about a bill I was working on. And this legislator said, not my issue, there are no gay people in my district. That's a Chicago thing. Oh. No one says that to me anymore, Mm -hmm. because I think legislators realize that there are now queer people in Mm -hmm. every single town community, and those folks are raising their voices. Um, And like I said, resilient and fierce, not waiting for the world to change around them. They're part of the change. They're building their communities the way they want to see them. And I think that, yeah, it's a scary time. There's a lot of attacks happening. You have all these political attacks with Governor Abbott sending migrants to Chicago as a political attack. You have governors around the state attacking trans kids, but those are people and they are fighting back. And um, I always want to remind folks, as we talk about folks moving to Illinois, there are communities who are fighting back in Florida. Our partners at Equality Florida are fighting back Equality Texas. And just that resilience, that fierceness is just inspiring to me. And I just, it's the, the people are the best part of the work I do so and i don't anticipate that changing anytime soon
0: the hc3 podcast is a production of third horizon strategies associate producers are megan phillip and topher rasmussen executive producer is david smith the music is by Don finter help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.